Hey listeners, it's your boy Darren Patterson, one half of the illustrious SNL nerds. Y'all know me, still the same old G, but I've been low-key. And surprise, surprise, we're giving you guys a beautiful bonus episode for your ears right before Labor Day weekend. How about that? We're nice like that. So you are welcome. Uh, Yeah, so this is basically what you're going to be hearing on this episode. Uh, John Trumbull and I were guests on the Fade Out podcast hosted by Rob Kelly. Basically, that's a podcast where each episode they focus on one actor who is uh, no longer with us, who has passed on, and we focus on their final film, the, the, the film they... They went out on. And uh, since we're an SNL podcast, we figure, well, let's do uh, an SNL cast member and their final film. Let's do maybe Mr. John Belushi. And that's what we're doing here. We talk all about John Belushi and the uh, final film he went out on. Now infamous, oddball, and just straight up bizarre 1981 film Neighbors with Dan Aykroyd and Kathy Moriarty. And, uh, oh boy, it is... Um, it's an interesting one. It's def- it's definitely a film. It's definitely a film. So we just go we just kind of go into the history of this film, you know, what went into making it, all the troubles that went into it. There're like a lot of behind the scenes drama. It's a very uh, troubled uh, production and we also just try to make sense of this very odd 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 film. And uh, we of course as always we make it funny too. It's it's always a laugh riot when you're with us. So um, you know, Give this uh, podcast a listen, give this episode a listen, and uh, enjoy yourself. And if you want to listen to other episodes of the uh, Fade Out podcast, you can listen to them on all uh, all the platforms that you listen to your podcasts there, your Spotify's, your Google Plays, your Apple Podcasts, and the like. Fade Out is also on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. So go to fireandwaterpodcast.com. Give them a listen. Yeah. Give this episode a listen. Thanks again for always supporting us and listening to us and believing in us. And as always, until then, nerds out. Hello and welcome to Fade Out, the podcast that examines the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. For this episode, our subject is comedy icon John Belushi. Born in Chicago in 1949 to a large Albanian family, including younger brother Jim, John Belushi always had a yearning to perform. After trying his hand at music in high school, Belushi formed his own comedy troupe after college where he caught the attention of Bernie Sollins, the founder of Second City. He joined the cast alongside other future stars Harold Ramis, Joe Flaherty, and Brian Doyle Murray. It didn't take long for everyone to see that Belushi was a magnetic performer, able to capture the audience's attention with just a grunt or a nod. He soon joined the National Lampoon's production of Lemmings, a parody of the Woodstock generation. While part of the Lampoon, he worked with even more future stars like Chevy Chase, Christopher Guest, Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, and the man who would become his closest friend, Dan Aykroyd. Despite his reputation for being difficult on stage and off, his skills were undeniable, and he was hired by a somewhat leery Lorne Michaels for his new show, Saturday Night Live. After Chevy Chase left SNL in the beginning of the second season, Belushi grabbed the spotlight and never gave it back, becoming the show's signature star for the next three seasons. His fame reached stratospheric levels when, in 1978, thanks to his appearance in his first film, National Lampoon's Animal House, and his partnership with Aykroyd as one half of the Blues Brothers, Belushi hit the show business triple play, a number one record, the number one film of the year, and the hottest show on television. Despite his now iconic performance as Bluto, Belushi was determined to show audiences what else he could do. He co-starred with Jack Nicholson in 1978's Going South, then took a mostly dramatic turn 
in 1978's Old Boyfriends. He went back to gonzo comedy in 1979's 1941, a notorious flop. He left SNL after the fourth season with Aykroyd, and the two of them would star in the now classic The Blues Brothers in 1980. He tried his hand as romantic comedy in 1981's Continental Divide, and then reteamed with Aykroyd for what would be his final film, Neighbors. Here with me to discuss Neighbors and the all-too-short film career of John Belushi are the hosts of the SNL Nerds podcast, Darren Patterson and John Trumbull. Hi, guys. Hi, Rob. Thanks for hey, having us. Hey, Rob. How's it going? Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm a big fan of the SNL Nerds podcast. It's a, quite an impressive achievement in SNL fandom, and that's saying something. So I'm really thrilled to finally be doing this episode on John Belushi and be talking with uh, you guys about his career. Now, uh, as mentioned, the, his final film is Neighbors. It was released on December 18th. 1981 but let's wind back the clock a little bit further i want to find out from both of you where does your fandom if you can call it that with john belushi start did you first discover him as a member of snl or was he already you know he was a movie star by the time you guys got around to to discovering him so darren let's start with you uh yeah well i discovered belushi it was definitely uh during his years on snl like um like in the 90s, I was a huge, I still am a huge, like, you know, comedy nerd. And I really loved watching a lot of the, um, you know, sketch comedy shows in particular. And they always used to have those uh, quite a bit on like VH1 and Comedy Central. They would show like reruns of the old SNL all over and over again, old kids in a hall. And I just kind of watch all that up. And yeah, I think I, that's exactly where, that's where I knew about Belushi. Um, you know, I think it was, what was that maybe caught my eye about him? Probably maybe the like one of his samurai sketches, like samurai, you know, laundromat or samurai tax attorney or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that uh, I was like, oh wow, he's, this 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 is pretty interesting. And uh, I remember that that was my earliest memory of him. And of course, like when he would do one of his um rants behind the uh, news desk, you know, sure. he, did, he did that, you know, but no, right. like, and then he just like flop, you know, do a back backflop over, <laughs> over the uh, the desk and it just looked like so, like the most manic dangerous thing i've ever seen in my life um <laughs> let's talk I about mean, the bad luck of the iron yeah <laughs> exactly like i mean now as far as my my fandom of belushi i like belushi me personally i you know i think i like some other cast members a little bit more you know i, I you know Aykroyd was a little bit more versatile i think and bill murray of course is bill murray but uh, I appreciated Belushi. I appreciated what he brought and, uh, you know, the performer he was. Uh, I can't remember for sure if I first saw Belushi on SNL or if maybe I saw Animal House first. Maybe SNL, that probably would have been a little more accessible to me with SNL reruns being on basic cable uh, and, and like the best of compilations. But yeah, I mean... Like Darren said, it, Belushi was just a pretty remarkable talent, and he was he was great on the show. Um, the the little chocolate donuts uh, <laughs> commercial spot that's that's a favorite of mine still. The donuts of champions. Yeah, yeah, and you know he and he's like literally smoking a cigarette while he's doing. <laughs> um, They've got the sugar I need to get me going in the morning. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> and and. Uh, Oh, the you know the Blues Brothers number that he did with Aykroyd when they did Soul Man—that's mm-hmm. uh, still one of my favorite things that's ever been on uh, Saturday Night Live. I mean, I think that's just incredible. Can I tell you that's my favorite cold open the show has ever done? Is that is that that song? 
I, that's I, a great choice, man. I, the energy of it is so high yeah. that I'm just like, I can't imagine what that was like to be in the studio to, to be that. The, the crowd is so crazy. And it's not funny. I mean, it's just a song. Yeah. It's kind of atypical, but uh, every time I'm, it, it always cheers me up that that performance is just so high energy. And it's so fun. Yeah. It's, it's great stuff. So, I mean, yeah. And then I'm of course a huge fan of animal house and, and blues brothers is another comedy classic. So yeah, I, I quite like the John Belushi. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. I mean, you know, you guys are experts on the show and uh, I, I I'm sure that you have read all you know, a number of the myriad books that have been written about SNL. Uh, the joke is like, I think it's like they say, like the Bible and Abraham Lincoln are like the only two subjects that have been written about more than Saturday, the early years of Saturday Night Live huh. at this point. But it's it's interesting is, like, you know, of course, in the early years, I mentioned it in the intro was that, you know, Chevy Chase was the star was by, you know, by accident, the star of the show in the first season because yeah. he was such a powerful performer. He was also kind of co-writing the show a lot with Lauren and Michael O'Donohue. And he got to be on screen under his own name with no makeup, unlike right. the rest of the cast. And so he had in a tremendous head start. And that turned the show a little bit into like the Chevy Chase show. And of course, the rest of the crew was not super happy about that. But it's sort of funny that the minute Chase is gone, he leaves like three or four shows into the second season. Belushi's like, well, now, now I'm the star. And you're like, no, wait a minute. There's not, there's no star. That's, it's an ensemble. <laughs> but it was, you know, in John's mind, it was like, no, no, no. I've been being, I've been playing second fiddle to this guy for a year and now I'm going to take over. And he kind of did. Because yeah. he and Gilda Radner was, in fact, one of the writers called them this in one of the SNL books I read, the meat and potatoes. They said of the show was like that. They got the preponderance because he was such, again, such a dynamic performer. And you're talking about a guy who was standing on stage with, as you guys just talked about, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray. And yet he is still kind of ostensibly sort of the star. So you can see it makes total sense that he wanted to replicate his success in other arenas and as i mentioned in the intro him and Ackward formed the blues brothers and it becomes this whole thing outside of snl and then he goes and he does his first movie which is animal house now i know technically he did a voice in an animated film called the shame of the jungle yeah tarzoon it's a, a tarzoon parody i guess <laughs> wow. i saw it decades ago on vhs it's from what i remember it's terrible like, it's not funny at all. It's basically Tarzan, but if it was dirty. That's how I remember it. Like, dirty jokes involving Tarzan. Uh, yeah. And that's not going to be anything we're going to bother with discussing in this <laughs> in this episode. Um, can you guys remember when you first saw Animal House? Were you of age or were you a little technically too young to have seen it? Uh, I was I was definitely of age. I think I saw it when uh, probably I was, like, in college or something. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where I think, like, Around college time, I, I I sort of fancied myself like a, a bit of a cinema fan, or like I I think I, I went through this phase where I really wanted to watch all of the comedies and all the dramas and all the films that people considered classics. Like like I wanted to educate myself, so like that's when I probably saw Animal House <clears throat> and you know Caddyshack and stuff like films like that. Like people, films that people say like, oh no, you have to watch this film. And uh, yeah, I I saw it uh, back then, and I was like, oh, this is this is definitely something I haven't. I, I mean, it's, it's like it was something I had sort of seen before because around that time, um, you know, American Pie had come out, and you know, it was like films that sort of borrowed heavily from the 
animal house sort of blueprint. But like, I mean, but like after I, when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is where all of all these movies that are coming out now, this is where they got their, their, their ideas from. They're all kind of riffing and borrowing from this one film. It's, it's definitely eye-opening, I would say, at the time. <laughs> John? I, I must have seen Animal House sometime in my teens, so I wasn't quite of age, but I think that's half the fun of Animal House is if you see it when you're like a little too young for it still. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it just, and I, I loved it from, from the start. I mean, it's, it's still a hilarious film. It's, it's deeply wrong. I mean, in the stuff that they do, but it's still funny as hell. I gotta admit that. I mean, it's it's not PC by any stretch of the no, imagination. No, 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 it is. And is it still funny? <laughs> yeah, I I watch it pretty regular. It's a good. Uh, it's a movie we put on to go to sleep to because I've seen it so many times. So I don't yeah. care if I fall asleep on it. And that's not an insult. Obviously, it's it's sort of like comfort food. It's that despite it being so sloppy with its humor kind of like it's all over the place. It seems kind of, you know, it has, it has some sort of seriousness to it. Like the, the Boone and Katie story is kind of serious, but yeah. then the movie also has, you know, Tom Hulse in a devil outfit sitting on his shoulder. You know I mean? It's like, it really it encompasses yeah. all kinds of styles, but it's a deceptively good movie. Like it's, it, it looks like it was from the, from, from the outside. You're like, oh, it's animal house. It's just kind of gross out comedy, but it's the performances are really sharp. They use and you know this kind of gets in perfectly with with our talk about John Belushi. It uses him perfectly. Yes, you know, I mean, there's this famous story about that he originally wanted to be in on the um the road trip sequence, mm-hmm. and John Landis was like, "No, you can't be in the road trip. You're too you're Bluto. We can't have you in a car. You got it. You know, you're like this force of nature." And it's like, yeah, Landis knew exactly what Belushi's appeal was in that movie and how exactly to use it and it, you watch it and you go, yeah, there's long chunks where he's not in the movie and he's not really the star of it. He doesn't have any arc, you know, I mean, you know, Boone has an arc somewhat and, and, you know, some of the other kids, Thomas, Thomas Hall's characters kind of has an arc, but mm-hmm. Blu, you know, Bluto's just Bluto, but at the same time, and also the fact that he's like, you know, what, like 32 when he made that movie, <laughs> he's playing like, <laughs> an, although he does say seven years of college down the drain. So maybe he's older. But like it's it it's like no wonder that movie made him a star because it is it's presenting everything you like about him in the most effective way possible without any of the censoring that had to go on being on television. So it's like no wonder that movie went on to become the highest grossing comedy of all time. And it turned him into like, again, they say in that one SNL book, the uh, backstage history of Saturday Night Live from Belushi lowercase to Belushi uppercase. Mm-hmm. You know, and it completely transformed SNL at that point because he was then the biggest star in America. And that's just an amazing thing. But then I find it really, really interesting that what does he do with all that power, right? At that point, what does he choose to do? He could have just done five or six more animal houses. Lord knows they would have done it, yeah. you know? And what does he choose to do? He goes to work for Jack Nicholson in going South and in a small part. Now I watched that movie not that long ago. It's not that great. <laughs> Despite the amazing cast. Uh, it's not, it, it's not as funny as I sort of want it to be for a movie with Jack Nicholson and Christopher Lloyd and um, Veronica Cartwright is in the movie. She's the funniest thing in that movie, actually. 
And it's um, Mary Steenburgen's first movie. Mary Steenburgen's first movie. But like, there's Belushi plays one of the gang that's always trying to capture uh, capture Nicholson's character, and it's weird because he's like he never gets a singularly funny scene to do. And I feel like did they cut him out of the movie or something? Like he's the part is so nondescript that you're like, why is even John Belushi in this movie? Now that you forgot, have you guys seen that movie in a while? I I've seen it, but it's been ages since I've seen it. It it's, has to be at least a decade or more since okay. I've seen it last. So I really just have vague memories of going south at this point. And I, I saw going south mainly because I was like a huge Jack Nicholson fan. Right. So I wanted to see everything he did. And that's like the first of like, I think three movies that he's directed. Yeah. It's a very tiny handful of movies that he's, that he's ever directed. Yeah. But it, yeah. it said it's a curious, but again, you look at that and you say, okay, like he's choosing to go work with Jack Nick. Like he could just do animal house again. And he's not, he's choosing <laughs> yeah. to work with Jack Nicholson, you know, like that's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, And then he does this other movie, old boyfriends, which most people don't even know mm. exists. This is yeah. a movie. This is the kind of movie that you look him up on IMDb and you go through the, the, his filmography and you're like, wait, what is that movie? Yeah. And mm. It's a uh, for people who haven't seen it. It's a it's a drama, really, with starring Talia Shire, and she goes back and it's kind of an inverse high fidelity where she goes and researches. She goes and looks up all, a couple of her old boyfriends uh, because uh, she's going through some of this trauma, and I don't want to get into the whole details of it. But one of her old boyfriends is John Belushi, who is this kind of washed up uh, kind of guy who peaked in high school kind of thing. And now you guys had not seen the movie before doing the show, right? No. No. Okay. No. So I just watched it this afternoon. So. Wow. Okay. So, John, let me start with you. What did you think of, of Old Boyfriends? As a movie, I wasn't too nuts about it. I, right. I, didn't, I, I didn't think it was real successful as a piece. I thought Belushi's parts were probably the most interesting. Mm-hmm. It was, I, thought, I found it really interesting that he, he plays, he's, he's the singer in a band. And it's like the same band that he had in high school. It's sort of evolved since then. And they're like playing hotels and things like that. Um, and he also has a side business <laughs> with uh, formal wear. Yeah. Because he's like, well, we play a lot of proms and stuff. So like I can cross promote the band and the formal wear. <laughs> <laughs> um, and <clears throat> at one point, Tally Shire, she comes to see him at a hotel or a motel he's playing at and he's singing jailhouse rock right yeah and this is like the year before the blues brothers and i was like that's weird that there are two different movies where john belushi sings jailhouse rock and i don't think i had heard of this movie before because it it is probably the most obscure movie in his in his uh filmography absolutely yeah so um it, it was very interesting to see him play a straight part you know, he's he's not doing a lot of mugging. He's not doing a lot of posturing. He's not even especially funny. He's just kind of playing the guy. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see him. And you, you, it makes you wonder what sort of career he might have had as a straight actor. Uh, yeah, I thought it was okay. I thought there were, I think I'm kind of in the same of, I had the same thoughts as Trumbull did. Where, like, I thought some parts were interesting. Like, when, like, you know, she talks to her, the first old boyfriend she goes to, and they have, like, a serious kind of heart to heart about you know the past and regrets and i thought there was some interesting stuff there but it kind of i don't know i think i, I feel like it kind of maybe meanders a little bit and doesn't quite get there but overall it was an interesting film but i did like um like john said the um 
that uh, Pelushi sings Jailhouse Rock in this movie. I made a note of that. I was like, he sings Jailhouse Rock in this too. And yeah. like there were there were like a couple other like SNL connections that really made me chuckle at like the fact that Buck Henry's in this film. Buck Henry, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And then the fact that there's a scene where uh, Talia Shire's character is watching the Continental, the the OG Continental that um, that was the basis of that Christopher Walken sketch. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, oh wow, that's I forgot that was actually a thing. They didn't that's not it wasn't something that SNL just made up. Yeah, it, it kind of blew my mind when I first found out, wait, that was an actual television show. <laughs> and it was like shot from the camera's POV where like you're on a date with this guy, and it's so weird. <laughs> television was very weird back then. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's not a good movie. Uh it doesn't really work. The music is very bizarre. The music in the mm. opening credits is like a thriller. It's like a Bernard Herrmann score. Yeah, yeah, that's it, exactly, yes. I'm like, is this, wait, what is this movie? Um, but and, and Belushi is by far the most interesting part of it because it's yeah. John Belushi playing a serious part. And there's this moment where um, he, Talia Shire takes him out in this car and she pretends that they're going to have sex. And then she basically... Uh, gets his pants off, throws him out of the car, and then takes off and leaves him there with his pants down around his ankles. And there's a, um, there's a, um, I think it's in the book Wired, which I read many, many years ago. Not a great book, but nevertheless, I did read it. And I think they talk about there's a moment where he actually went to a screening of it, like a, like a, a, a public screening and watched people and people did not like this movie because he's Bluto and in this movie he's getting one-upped by Talia Shire and his Gonzo fans did not like that at all Mm. and they kind of like it was like maybe him and some other people and they kind of walked out feeling sick like oh no this movie people are not going to like like this movie and yeah he had to know he had to know playing that part coming off of of Animal House was so not what an audience was. It reminds me a little bit of like Adam Sandler and Punch Drunk Love, you know, mm-hmm. just taking your audience and kind of sticking your their your thumb in their eye a little bit of like this is. I remember going to see Punch Drunk Love in the theater, and there were people who were clearly diehard Adam Sandler fans, and they were you could almost hear them be like, "What the fuck is this movie?" <laughs> and they yeah. a couple of them got up and walked out and didn't come back. Mm. And and not, not that old boyfriends is that extreme, but in terms of what he was now known for, he was Bluto and he was Jake Blues. And then to do this small little drama where he's only in about 15 minutes of it, I, I admire the hell out of him for doing it. I mean, it was a giant flop, but mm-hmm. I admire him for trying. And it really says something about, I think, what he wanted to do, how how he saw himself and yeah. what he was capable of doing. Uh, and apparently it's his only film directed by a woman, Joan Tewksbury. And apparently when they were done, she took him aside and said, John, you were great in this movie. I really love you, and you have a great career ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Ooh. she knew how good he was. And it's a darn shame that he never got a chance to really do that kind of thing again. And we'll get into that a little bit more. He did, you know, he continued trying to uh, expand what he could do a little bit. But then he goes right into 1941, uh, which is, again, kind of more of the gonzo thing. Now, what... I, 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 let me start with you guys. Dan, let me start with you. What? What have you seen? Nineteen forty-one in a while. What do you think of it? Oh, uh, we have. We actually saw it. Uh, was like a year ago. We talked about it on our podcast. It was a whole episode yeah, I, we did. I on. think that was our July Fourth show. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was. 
yeah, like that movie, I believe my thoughts at the time were it was just, it's long and all over the place. Yeah. I, I believe it's, it, there's, they pack in a lot and there's just a lot happening and it's, it doesn't quite come together, but it's, it's loud and it's noisy and there's a lot of it. <laughs> that's it. I think that's pretty much my, my synopsis of, uh, of that film. Uh, yeah. My feelings on 1941 are basically, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, what Darren said, it's, yeah, it's, it's loud. It's all over the place. It's not, very funny at all i mean it's got a lot of funny people in it but it's it's just unfunny slapstick so the film's kind of a slog um it's, so yeah, yeah it's it's one of those movies that i revisit probably every five six seven years and mm-hmm. i keep thinking is it gonna get better you know what i mean like it's no. like, <laughs> it, it, like is it gonna come around and i'm gonna go oh no it's actually an unsung classic and then i just watch it again and i go oh no no, it's yeah. just not funny. Yeah. And the decision to cast John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd in a movie and barely have the meat yeah. feels like cinematic malpractice. Well, you know? And Belushi's by himself for most of the yeah. movie. He's got nobody to play off. Uh, yeah. He's just flying around in a plane because he's like this daredevil pilot, uh, Wild Bill Kelso. And, and it's just, he just doesn't have much to do. He falls down a few times and I mean, he does what he can, but it's just not a, an especially funny story. It's not an especially funny movie. To to sell it on yeah. Ackroyd and Belushi, and then they have I think that one brief scene together. You're just like, what? 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 Like yeah. that's just purposefully frustrating. You know, yeah. to 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 have them go. It reminds me. There's a there's a movie from the 50s called The Story of Mankind, which features the three Marx brothers in their final film, but they have no scenes together. Like what? Yeah. What? Why would I want to see that? Why do <laughs> why, why do I want to see Chico Marks by himself? I, so, yeah. I am very glad that we covered 1941, though, because it gave me an excuse to reach out to uh, Steve Bissett, who is one of the guys who drew the comic book adaptation along with Rick Veach for Heavy Metal. <laughs> and What in a strange... I mean, those guys are geniuses, but interesting choice to draw a 1941 adaptation. Yeah, and, and he told us all about the insanity of producing that comic book. And Steven Spielberg literally sent a letter saying... Uh, Beset and Veach are ferociously talented but demented. <laughs> that was after he saw the the artwork that they did. Because and and I think my favorite story of it is like they'd finally completed this huge job and it was like I think like a seventy two or eighty four page comic something like that. And uh, a- after they'd finished it and they had a stack of the pages in the corner, uh, the dog of one of them comes in from outside and he was wet from from outside and he just like shakes off all the water and then like sits right on all the pages oh my god so the pages had all these water damage on it and you can see it on some of the pages in the printed book but they realized they tried to like dry off the pages and stuff but they realized there was so much insanity going on on the pages it really didn't matter it was just like one more insane thing happening on the on the comic pages what so. would make anyone think that that would work in a comic book form? That movie trying to trying to replicate that movie's tone in comic book form, like you know what I mean? Like why? Huh? huh? I mean, I know that's what they did. They yeah, adapted I mean, all sorts of movies back that, then. The post Star Wars world, where you know that movie was such a, a huge phenomenon, and Marvel had a comic book adaptation of that. So I think anything any yep. of those Spielberg guys did, yep. they wanted to do a comic book adaptation. Yeah. Just in case it was a similar hit, and 
I've never seen the adaptation. Do, does it look like Belushi? Do they have like the likeness rights? Is it that they look like the actors? It's a it's a real cartoony Belushi. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's interesting to, to see. I I can I can send you a link when we're yeah. Done. I kind of want to see a... it now because I mean it's certainly the only comic book John Belushi. Well, it's not the only one. Obviously, he appeared in the, that Marvel team up issue, exactly. but I mean, it's the only film of his that was ever adapted into any sort of comic book form. That's interesting. All right. I will have to, I will have to check that out. Um, so then he does, you know, he does 1941 and then he does the Blues Brothers. And that's one of those movies that I think to a certain generation of people, and I think you, the three of us are all around there. That's just an unassailably great movie. It just is. It's just, a, it's a movie that to certain subset of people, they know all the lines. It's just become part of their DNA. And for the, for many years when I was a kid, it was my favorite movie of all time. I just, ne- I never got tired of it. I still don't. I could watch it every so often. Uh, not only I think is it just a classic, Belushi is fantastic in it. He's hilarious. Again, back with John Landis. And what, think about the idea that you would have your star. Buried under sunglasses through the entire film, except for one scene. That is so not the way you were supposed to make a movie. And yet it completely works. I mean, I just, I, to me, it's like, as much as I love Animal House, I, to me, it's like Belushi, it's the Blues Brothers. That's it, man. He, they, they, they crushed it. And, you know, uh, <laughs> like, you're lucky to have one great film in your career, let alone a couple. But man, the Blues Brothers, that's just it. Yeah, that's, that's a great one. That's we we had a, we we covered that in the first year of the podcast. I remember because like you know what we what we do on the SNL nerds we we talk about the show during the regular season and then during the off season like the summer hiatus where we are now we cover movies starring SNL alumni. So the first summer we did that we went through all the movies that had spun off of SNL sketches. So Blues Brothers was the very first movie we covered on the podcast and. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yep, still works. Yeah, no, it still holds up. I mean, there's a lot of kind of you know zany, madcap uh, wackiness in it, but it's and it's in, it's in a way that sort of makes more sense. You know, like like 1941 had a lot of over the top explosions and noise and just you know just you know just madness. And Blues Brothers has that too, but it also you know slows down a bit and but knows when to pick it up and has a better pacing. Mm-hmm. of the madness rather than what like uh, 1941 had so yeah i mean had amazing action in it amazing music i mean oh, good lord God, yeah i mean ray charles aretha franklin i mean james, james brown. brown yeah i mean holy hell like <laughs> i mean the music alone just puts it gives it five stars i mean add that to like you know one of belushi's best performances and actually best performances the chemistry between them is just off the charts i mean it's it's still a solid movie. And, you know, Illinois Nazis, you, I, they <laughs> still, still hate them to this day. <laughs> it's amazing how many lines still, you know, reverberate. You can still use to this day. You know, I still see the, uh, we're, we're, we've got half a half a pack of cigarettes, a full, you know, that, that whole bit. I still yeah. see that in memes and stuff. It's just kind of absolutely amazing. And it was sort of funny that at the time, the rest of the SNL crew was sort of like, what are they doing? Like, that was not, you know, nobody thought that you could take a sketch on SNL and turn it into a movie. And now of course yeah. it's pretty standard, but back then the rest of the, the rest of the group was like, what are they? What? You can't do that. That's just, that's, that's for the show guys. And I was like, no, 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 this could be its own thing and have its own legend to turn into its own, its own little center of, of gravity. So after 
uh, Blues Brothers, he then tries to stretch again, and he does a romantic comedy, Continental Divide, with Blair Brown. Uh, now, did you guys watch that before uh, before we recorded this? I did not watch that one again. Um, I have seen it in, I think I've seen most of it, like in bits and pieces of it at the very least. But it's been, again, it's been a long time since I've seen any Continental Divide. But I know I've stumbled across it on TV. And I, I liked what I saw. What about you, Darren? Uh, I have not seen it. Uh, so I, no, but I do remember, like, I, I know it was like, it was one of his more serious roles and one of his more, his like, uh, you know, one of his shots at being like more of a serious actor trying to show more range and, and in his acting, uh, in his acting chops. And I remember seeing, um, about a, a couple of months, uh, I think like, like a year ago, we talked about it on the podcast, but, um, Showtime came out with, uh, the Belushi documentary. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and then there's one segment in it where Belushi is inter- being interviewed by a Gene Shalit talk, and they're promote he's there to promote the movie. And Gene Shalit is like, "Yeah, this is a different side of you. You know, people are, you know, people. Are, I don't know if people are used to this." And then even Belushi was like, "Yeah, I know people want me to do Bluto for you know five other movies. What we want, they want me to do, you know, Bluto in space or Bluto on the Bluto on space on, on the Matterhorn, or Bluto does this, or Bluto goes back in time. But you no, know, no, I want I want to try to do <laughs> something different and show more range. So even you can even see back then he was thinking, yeah, I don't want to get you know pigeonholed into being just this big loud frat boy guy. Like I, there's more depth to me. I want to show other things that I can do. So he was even worried about it back then. <laughs> Blue, Blue going back in time since kind of like a good movie though. I, have to say. I, I, would, I, I would see and most likely enjoy all of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Blue in space. Yeah. Sign me up for that right now. Yeah, Those are, those are go pictures. I would say, but, but okay. All right. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, he tried, he tried continental divide. I, again, I watched it again for this. It's not a great movie, but it's so nice. A movie. Mm-hmm. That you have a hard time, at least I do, really disliking it. You know, it's not particularly funny. And you don't buy Blair Brown and John Belushi as a romantic couple at all. So, you know, right there, you're like, well, wait a minute. If there's no romance, there's no comedy. How does romantic comedy work? And it really kind of doesn't. But it's it's just such a good hearted attempt that and I don't I don't I, that sounds so condescending. This is a great recommendation. <laughs> again, I don't mean it to be it's Michael Apted directed it. I mean, you know, it, yeah. it, it's just it's you know, you we've all seen movies that are not good and you walk away kind of angry. You know, you're like, yeah. oh god, I, there are other movies that aren't good and you just kind of shrug and go, Yeah, that wasn't very good, but you just don't have like a grudge against it. That's that movie. I just I'm like, all right, they're they're trying something different. Blair Brown is 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 fun. And the whole angle of him being like a Chicago reporter, like that's kind of cool, but it just doesn't really hang together. And there is, I, I, you could tell that like, there's moments where like, they're trying to insert like some Bluto-ish humor, which feels very discordant. So it's, it just, it just doesn't really work. But again, you're like, good for him for trying, good for him for trying something different. As you just talked about Darren, like he could have just done Bluto in space. Bluto goes back in time and they would have funded that mm-hmm. immediately. And in fact, We'll talk about it. one of the things that uh, how the, the studios were trying to get him to do when he passed away was a Bluto esque comedy, which if you read it on paper, sounds like it's absolute garbage. Uh, but again, we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. So then he decides to reteam with his pal Dan for Neighbors. And my first instinct about Neighbors is is to, to repeat the thing I, I read about in the, the Belushi biography by his widow, Judy Jacqueline Belushi. 
Yeah, I've got that book. Yeah, it's a great book, which is, you know, some movie shoots go well, some go just okay, some go badly. And then there were some where the stars seriously considered taking out a hit on the director. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happened on Neighbors. That's a bad shoot. That's That's a bad, bad shoot. Um, And, And what I love about that story is Belushi is like, I can't believe how cheap it is. $5,000. You could get a used car for that. <laughs> I think that that's the part that upset him. Yeah. Not that the, the, the basic morality of we're going to put out a hit on director yeah, John G. And, and, and people were like, uh, yeah, but John, you shouldn't put a hit out on, on <laughs> the director because that is wrong. And he's like, yeah, but I can't believe how cheap it is. <laughs> <laughs> think of the savings. <laughs> it's just like, so, okay, for those of you listening who have not seen this movie, uh, like I said, it was released in 1981. It uh, is based on a novel by Thomas Berger, which was a, a best-selling novel. I, To be honest, having seen the movie, I can't for the life of me imagine this as a book. Like, how, how did this work as a book? But, okay. I know the book has a different ending. I did read that. Okay, all right. I still, I just can't. And the the plot of it is such, again, I'll, let me get very brief plot synopsis of this movie. Uh, the low-key suburban life of Earl Keese and his bored wife Enid is thrown into chaos when a new set of neighbors move into their other house at the end of their cul-de-sac, Vic and Ramona Zek. Ramona wastes no time coming on to Earl, even with Enid in the next room, then pulling the rug out from under him, only to start the process all over again. Even worse for Earl is Vic, a loud, boorish guy who invites himself over to dinner, Demands Earl pay for the meal, then borrow, borrows Earl's car to get the food, only to pocket the cash and cook the meal for himself next door. Enid is no help, seemingly more disposed towards the new neighbors than her own husband. Tensions rise to the point that violence breaks out, pathetic cartoony violence, made even worse for Earl when their college daughter comes home unannounced and, like her mother, seems to take more to Vic and Ramona than Earl. Come sunrise, the Zex plan to leave the neighborhood. Earl has a change of heart, realizing that the Zecks have injected more excitement into his life than he's had in years. He sets fire to his house and joins Victor Ramona in their car, heading out for parts unknown. Earl Keese is played by John Belushi. Vic, of course, played by Dan Aykroyd. Ramona Zeck is played by Kathy Moriarty. Enid Keese is played by Catherine Walker. Elaine Keese, Lauren Marie Taylor, and the two supporting characters, Pa Greevy and Perry Creevy. These mechanics are played by the uh, SNL vet Tim Kazarinski and Tino Insana. It was directed by John G. Avildsen, who passed away in 2017. He directed movies like, of course, Rocky, Joe, Save the Tiger, and The Karate Kid. Screenplays by Larry Gelbart, who, of <laughs> course, was the major creative force behind a show I'm familiar with, MASH. He also wrote, Oh God, Tootsie, Barbarians at the Gate, had one of the great uh, screenplay and writing careers in Hollywood. Now, the original conception of this movie was that Aykroyd was going to play Earl, the button-down suburbanite. And Belushi, of course, was going to play the wild man. And legend has it is right before shooting, they decided we're going to switch parts. We want to do something different. Belushi's going to play the, the put upon suburban henpecked guy and Aykroyd's going to play the wild man. Now, that, you know, that's it's, that story has been repeated so much. I assume it's true at this point, yeah. but it makes no sense to me because Earl is clearly the leading character in this movie right i mean it's clearly his movie yeah so it's like would belushi and Aykroyd would have made a movie where Aykroyd was the star that seems unlikely doesn't it i i hadn't thought about it in that regard that 
the the part of Earl is a bigger part than the part of, of Vic. Um, but it's, but I mean, them switching parts is just so wrong-handed. I can't, I mean, I've seen the movie and I still can't quite understand it. It reminds yeah. me of a, a story I heard about when um, Neil Simon was putting The Odd Couple on Broadway. Yes. Oh, and yeah, and it was Art Carney and, and Walter Matthau were going to do it. And Matthau at the late, because of course he had played Oscar Madison and so successfully he owned that part. And at the last second, he's like, I want to play the other part. I want to play Felix. I want to stretch. I want to, you know, I'm an actor. I want to do something. It's my Walter Matthau impression. Very and, nice. And thank you. And Neil Simon's response was, Walter, go act in somebody else's play. Play Oscar Madison for me. <laughs> I was yeah. like, look, let's not, you know. Let's not fuck around here. Let's just play the part that you're born to play. And I could see that Belushi wants to do something different. Casting him as Earl Keys is gutsy. But at the same time, you say, but there's a reason why it, most people don't think it's going to work because it doesn't work. No. That's why. <laughs> like at all. <laughs> no, no. So, okay. Now you guys both watched this movie pretty recently. Uh, I mean, we can get into the details of it, but I mean, overall, like, what was your impression of of Neighbors, Darren? Let me start with you. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, oof, it was. <laughs> it was interesting. I'll say, I'll say that it wasn't. I don't want to say it was bad or terrible. It was interesting. I can take care of that. I'll say it's okay. bad and terrible. <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay. There you go. Uh, I mean, I kind of see what they were trying to do. Like they were trying to make. It seems like they're trying to make, I mean, basically the movie is about a man who's going through a midlife crisis and, you know, uh, you know, living in suburbia and the mundane life of it and how that gets to you and wears you down. It's just, I honestly, I think the main problem with this film is the tone. Like, I don't think anybody, I don't, I don't think they, I don't think they got a good grasp of what the tone of the film should be because at sometimes it's kind of slapsticky. Other times it's kind of sur- very surreal. Other times it's like a dark comedy, and like the music. Also, that's another thing I didn't like. The music in the background was very. It didn't suit the tone of. Oh boy, the music in this movie. Whoa. The music is all over the place, and I think that the guy that did the music is Bill Conti. Bill yeah. Conti from Rocky, yeah. So yeah, and like I, he, so he's. I mean, he's he's done. He knows how to do this. So I don't understand why, like sometimes during some scenes, there's like almost like cartoony music yes. playing in the background. Wow, yeah. wow, wow, wow. According to the it's... IMDb trivia, the, they did have a different type of score at first. It was like a more dramatic score, but it wasn't working with that. By, by Tom so, Scott, one of the Blues Brothers. Yeah, he had. And so Elvison had Bill Conti rescore the movie to emphasize the comedic elements. And Oh, boy, does it. Well, yeah, it tries to. It just works for doesn't work for a different reason. <laughs> yeah, oh. I, yeah, but I think that's the re- I think that's the main thing because because um, like you said, like uh, Dan and John really had problems with the director because the director <laughs> was trying to make this film more slapsticky, wacky. But he's not really a comedy director, so it's like his version of slapsticky, wacky. But then Dan and John really wanted to make this more of a darker comedy. Uh, and then they would really feel like he, the director was ruining the film. I believe at one point, John even calls like John Landis to see if he could come yeah. direct this film while the film is being made. 
And Landis was like, I'm, I'm doing American Werewolf in London. I can't. Don't you already have a director? Why are you, why are you calling me? It was like, yeah, like that. <laughs> what a question to ask. Ramis. Don't you already have a director? Yeah. He, al- he also called up Harold Ramis and he's like, hey, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about directing this film I'm in. And, and Ramis was like, okay, yeah, cool. Send the script over. I'll take a look <laughs> at it. And he was like, well, let's start shooting next week. <laughs> and, and Ramis was like, wait, are you talking about neighbors? <laughs> yeah. Like, so I think, I think that's the main thing I, uh, the problem with it the, the tone is all over the place it's like like people sort of act the, the way not not normal not people aren't normally supposed to act in a lot of, in a lot of these things a lot of times i'm thinking all right is this happening in his head is he because like like you said like um yeah uh belushi's character is like the main character like the whole film is told through his eyes so like part at the at the beginning i was thinking oh is this told through like a like an unreliable narrator type of film because in the beginning when we meet when he meets his neighbors like the first one Carrie Moriarty like immediately lets herself in immediately hits on him and like takes a bath in, in their home <laughs> and the but the wife never sees the wife never sees her and uh and then uh, Vic comes in and immediately sits down and takes his money in his car and but the wife never sees her too so like part of me is thinking all right well is this is this actually happening or is this happening in his head is this is like sort of the rebellious like thing he's created up in his mind to sort of shake up his mundane suburban lifestyle or maybe I'm giving this movie too much credit but yeah I think <laughs> overall the tone really messed up the movie overall uh agreed yeah it, it did occur to me when I was watching the movie yeah is this all a dream is this all in his head um because I I was surprised that because I knew the basic premise of the movie is like you know the the henpeck suburban night guy is driven nuts by his wacky neighbors but i was expecting it to be over an extended period of time but no this movie takes place over the course of like 24 hours yeah yep and that's weird um yeah but none of it is funny like at all i didn't laugh or crack a smile once it's just like stuff that happens and so the movie's only about an hour and a half, but it feels like about six. Yeah, it, <laughs> it sure does. Just, it is a slog, man. It is. Yeah, it's just not good. Yeah, it it it's the. I'm glad you mentioned the the music, uh, Darren, because yeah, that one of the. I generally don't notice film music. I don't listen to soundtracks independently of of the films that they're in. That's just not something that that, that, that it, you know. That I, I really bother with. Not even John it, Williams' Superman soundtrack. No, no, I really oh, I love it. You, I love it within the context of the movie, but li- listening to it separately just doesn't do anything for me. So for their mute for a film score to be bad, I would have to really notice it. You know, there are there, you know, and but holy crap. And and Bill Conti, obviously talented uh composer, no doubt, Oscar winning composer. But man, the music in this movie is god awful and it is there is so many there's one scene where after earl gets kind of flummoxed once again and you literally hear like that sad trombone music where it's like wah, 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 wah. and you're just like what is this movie like what were they thinking and knowing that uh one of john's friends tom, again tom scott from the blues brothers could have done it you're mm-hmm. like well that would have been a guy in some symp- simpatico with john's sort of tone and aesthetic. And I think the other problem I have with it is comedy out of frustration is really hard to pull off because you have to release that pressure valve. 
And if you never do, you're just mad the whole time. And through this entire movie's running time, it's just Vic and or Ramona getting the drop on Earl and making him look like an idiot. And then his wife treating him horribly. At no point does he really get a a moment of victory. And so you're just like watching John Belushi just being treated like garbage for 90 minutes. And you like John Belushi, you know, you inherently like him, whether you know him from Animal House or SNL or the Blues Brothers, or you're just watching this film. You know, this is the only film you've ever seen. I think you like him as a God help you. This is the only God help you. This is the only John Belushi film. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's like he's naturally charismatic and sympathetic, even when, you know, he was playing crazy characters and watching him just get treated like shit is just not funny and frustrating as all get out. And it's just like, you got to wonder, like, at what point did anybody, it seems like Belushi and Aykroyd knew it wasn't working. They knew. Avildsen, I don't know if he really knew where he was just like, well, we just got to finish this. But, it, yeah. you know, the fact that, as you were talking about, they try to get a director in in the middle of the film yeah. to replace them is unreal. And it's sort of funny. You, you mentioned that, uh, you know, Landis is working on American Werewolf in London. I know at some point that the studio tried to pitch Aykroyd and Belushi to star in that movie. And that's a oh. that's a wonderfully parallel universe that I would love to see. I would, I love American Werewolf in London. It's one of my favorite horror movies of all time. But I would love to live in the alternate world where Belushi and Aykroyd play those two roles. That would have been an insane movie to see those two in it. Wow, I didn't even heard of that. That's yep. Yeah. Belushi and Aykroyd that's in a awesome. horror movie. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that. That's that's very interesting. Can you imagine Aykroyd with all that viscera hanging off of him, yelling it? I mean, that would have been that would have been something. Uh, yeah. So it's like, yeah. And then some parallel world, they started that, and Neighbors never got made, and were probably you know, yeah. a little better off. I I actually have a book by Larry Gilbert. Uh, laughing matters rob do you have this no i've never read it i can't believe i have it considering how much i love larry gilbert but i've never read it well he he talks a little about the experience or his experience with neighbors he wasn't really around for the making of it but he talks about how he was a fan of the novel and i think he was even reading the novel when uh swifty lazar called him up and was like hey how would you like to write the movie and he was a fan of the novel so he signed on and then yeah he talked about how then it was uh, John Ablinson, uh became the director, and he was like, mm, yeah, I don't know if he's a good choice, but he was the hot person at the time because he was coming off a of Rocky. Um, and then, and then it was Belushi and Aykroyd, and he he talks a little about that. Um, he says, like, uh, you know, our two stars couldn't decide who would play which character in the film, who would play the straight role, and who would play the fiend. To everyone else, the logical choice was as clear as the nose on Belushi's face. That feature often obscured, however, by the little spoon that constantly protruded from it. Oh. <laughs> and then he says in parentheses, if I appear to speak disrespectfully of the dead is only because I am uh, trying to write this in the context of the time. Mm-hmm. In the end, Belushi played the straight role and Ackroyd played the fiend. It was a kind of inside joke, the kind that keeps audiences from going inside a theater. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Like, that's and then funny. he talks about when they they were getting together for the initial read through for the the whole cast to read through the script for the first time, uh, and he said, um, "Belushi, an extremely popular and sought after performer at the time, was also on the day we read extremely loaded. Constantly stopping the reading for trips to the men's room made him even more so. 
What he was ingesting, I have no idea. I'm a writer, not a chemist. But whatever it was, was making him highly creative. Every time he returned from the men's room, he had a few more thoughts for improving the screenplay. I was beginning to think that instead of a dealer in the toilet, he had a writer in there. (laughs) He couldn't stop spouting his ideas. It's a pity he wasn't there to hear them. He was as generous with the substance he was abusing as he was with his ideas. And he was childish and refusing to read with even a tentative sense of what I'd spent months writing, good or bad. Uh, Ackroyd, too, had a lot of ideas he wanted incorporated into the script. My gratitude not only knew no bounds, it was positively stillborn. Having Belushi and, uh, John Belushi and Dan Ackroyd help with a script was like throwing a party and having the Borges as your bartenders. Oh, boy. Wow. Uh, okay, along Larry. with Avlinson later, I asked him how in the world he was going to be able to handle Belushi. What's the problem with Belushi, he said. Belushi had spent the afternoon higher than the ceiling fan and the director hadn't noticed. Yeah. Um, Yeah. See, I thought like when I first saw this movie, like part of me was thinking, all right, maybe it's a thing where, because I never, I didn't read the book. Maybe it's one of those things where it's a really good book, but sometimes really good books don't translate the film very well. Yeah. So maybe that was it. Maybe the book just didn't like, you know, it just couldn't translate the film, but it sounds more and more like the issue was like, too many cooks in the kitchen type of thing where everybody wanted to have had, could have had different ideas of what the film should be. Yeah. I mean, like they all just kind of clashed together and no one really, they didn't really come together with one cohesive idea as to the tone of the movie and what this movie should be. And it, it shows it just, just cause this movie, the tone is just all over the place. Well, I mean, you know, Belushi and Ackroyd and, and Larry Gelbart, they're just two very, very different styles of comedy. Yes. I mean, Yes. Larry Gelbart's comedy is very precise. He, you know, he's a big fan of wordplay. Yep. And, yep. You know, it, it's just very, it's very constructed comedy. It's like a Swiss watch. And mm. Belushi and Ackroyd are, you know, much more loosey goosey and improv and, hey, let's see what happens. Let's try some stuff and that sort of thing. So yeah. I, it's not too surprising that the, they were incompatible. But yeah, I'm hmm. glad you, I'm glad you said that, John, because I, I, I love, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, and I love Larry Gelbart, but yeah. I also know they those two should not, those three should not be collaborating. That is not a good mix. No, no, it's it's like uh, you know, fudge and pickles or something. You know, it's just mm. two good tastes that they don't taste good together unless you're having like pregnancy cravings or something. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of those movies you hear about that get made every so often that like are, feature nothing but like the top talent, and you're like on paper. How can that lose? And then it just sort of does. Yeah. You know, like you're like, oh, we've got this person and this director and this writer. There's no way. And I don't want to. I have some movies in mind when I'm saying that, but I don't want to slam these other movies. But there's, oh, go, there's, ahead. go ahead. Slam the movies. They're a uh, hook. Yeah. Um, you know, like they're, they're mm. just mov- movies that like, again, on paper, you just say, how can that go wrong? Yeah. And you've got that level of talent. And then it just somehow doesn't congeal. And that's what this is, because I'm glad you said that. But Larry Gelbart's comedy is so specific and it's also gentle. You know, mm-hmm. it's a gentle. There's a there's a warmness to it, even when he's writing mash episodes where he's killing off a main character. Mm-hmm. There's a gentility and a warmth to his comedy that as much as I love Ackward and Belushi, that kind of they kind of don't have that. I mean, they do have some warmth. There's some warmth to the Blues Brothers and, and that I think gets kind of overlooked. But it. When they're in their most Gonzo-ish, that yeah. that it's it's slash and burn, and that is not Larry Gelbart. 
So it's like, I just, yeah, the, the, those two things just absolutely do not work. And it's got to be brutal going through the process of making a film, spending months making a movie, knowing it's not working. Just yeah. it's got to be so demoralizing because you're like, there's no way to fix this. You know, <laughs> like there's just, there's no way to salvage this. And I mean, performance wise, another thing, like I love Dan Aykroyd. I love Dan Aykroyd. That said, I think we all know from seeing his movies over the years, Dan Aykroyd needs somebody to run kind of like, kind of like rein him in. Yeah. Because if he doesn't get reined in, he goes way out there and yeah. leaves a lot of people in the dust. And that's and he, true of him as a writer too. Yes. The Ghostbusters, like the Ghostbusters yeah. script was 300 pages <laughs> and they like busted ghosts on Saturn. You know, and like yeah. Harold Ramis was like, uh, this is unshootable, Dan. Let's put him in New York. Oh, okay. That's a lot. Of, you know, like he, he need, he, he's an idea guy and he's a concept guy, but he needs somebody to say, whoa, 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 whoa. And I feel like if they're making this movie and they hate Avildsen to the point that they want to put out a hit on him, then there's nobody telling Dan Aykroyd, wait a minute. You, this Vic guy is so obnoxious. Yeah. That, like it's not funny anymore. Like yeah. he's not charmingly obnoxious. He's just a dick. He's just a giant dick. And it's not funny that he is being cruel to John Belushi. Yeah. When you let, when you let Aykroyd go and do whatever he wants, that's that. That's how you get movies like uh, nothing but trouble. Oh, <laughs> oh God. yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I saw that in the theater as well. Uh, yeah. Oh boy. So yeah, I, it's, it's a damn shame that this is his final film because you know i mean his career was abbreviated i mean you just mentioned john larry gilbert making references to belushi's drug habit and obviously you know the the point of the show is to celebrate people's careers it is not i don't not interested in dragging anybody no matter what choices they make in their career because everyone's always trying to do good work i think most people are trying to do good work but it is it is tragic that there were moments in Belushi's life where he could get clean and, mm -hmm. you know, like there's the whole, there's that whole uh, part about where he had that, um, that bodyguard with him. What was the guy's name, John? Smokey. Do you remember? Smokey. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they he was clean all the way through Continental Divide yes. just before this, but apparently he fell off the wagon during this movie because since the movie takes place in a 24 hour period, they did a lot of night shoots. Yep. And Aykroyd says in the Belushi book that, you know, early 80s everybody's doing cocaine just to stay up through the night oh, and yeah. and so belushi fell off the wagon and he also didn't have Smokey. he didn't have the same support system or watchdog in place yeah not a good combo not a good right combo. and you can imagine if you're <sighs> if you're someone of john belushi's insecurities yeah and he then he's working on a movie that he knows is not gonna work and he's coming off of a couple of films that are flops the blues yeah. brothers was a was a moderate success it's mm -hmm. i think it's it's fame and its legend has grown over time but it wasn't like it was uh, an animal house level hit but he's coming off a couple of films that are not well received and then he's working on this movie uh that is not working they know it in the middle of it that it's not working then his demons reared their ugly heads and he went back to doing drugs and that's of course what ended up killing him i'm old enough yeah. to remember that news i remember that happening and just being so completely shocked at that and just feeling how tragic it was this guy was only 33 years old and he succumbs to this and you know they mentioned this in the belushi book and i know they mentioned it in wired but like 
when he was in his last couple of months, he was working on two different scripts uh, that the, the studios were trying to get him to do. One was a, a kind of like romantic comedy adventure movie called Noble Rot, which mm-hmm. was set in wine country. And that was running into some problems. And then there was this other piece of junk called The Joy of Sex, which apparently was uh, kind of what you were mentioning earlier, Darren, like, you know, their version of Bluto in fill in the blank. And right. they talk about, apparently in that script, there's even a scene where like Belushi's character would have worn like a diaper is like a ba- in like a baby bonnet. And they just said people that read it said it was depressing. It was depressing thinking that this is what they thought Belushi should do, that this is what he was reduced to, that he was going to humiliate him. And they were just like, no, 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 just do this. Do do Bluto again. And that sent him down this dark path. And unfortunately, he said in March of 1982, he passed away and that leaves Neighbors to be his final film. And this film was... They, re- they, they released this as a Christmas movie, which, man, can you imagine? Yeah, that, that's the other thing. I was <laughs> like, this, this does not belong in Christmas time. This, there's nothing about this movie says Christmas. No, it's it, not. It doesn't belong in any season. Let's, let's be real. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. It's not. And it's not the kind of thing like an animal house where you're going to go and see it four or five times. You know, yeah. like you're like, oh, it's like a party. You know, it's just not that kind of movie. And. You know, again, it's I, I rewatched it again for, for this and I, I wanted to like it more than I did. And I just didn't. And it and it just makes me sad to see Belushi kind of waste and waste his time in this. And there's a part near the end where after like the 17th scene of Ramona telling him that she wants to bang him mm-hmm. and then pulling the rug out from under him, she she gives she offers it to him one more time. And then there's this extended sequence where he goes into the bathroom to get ready for his, 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 uh, finally he's going to sleep with her and it's set to staying alive by the Bee Gees. And it's not funny. And it goes on for what approximately feels like about 25 minutes, the sequence. And you're just like, what, why did anybody think this was funny? Ah, he's brushing his teeth. He's trimming his nose hair. He's flossing and it goes on for ever and you're just like it just broke my heart to see the, the legendary john belushi just wasting his time in this yeah i don't know maybe the maybe the person filming it was like well maybe the audiences may not like this movie but maybe they'll want to hear staying alive in its entirety <laughs> maybe so oh my god uh it just yeah and then the ending kind of comes out of nowhere where all of a sudden it's the next morning Enid has left him. By the way, I don't mean to be, uh, again, we try and keep positive on the show. Catherine Walker is Enid Keys. She is, her character is awful. It's just an awful character. And Catherine Walker does not bring very much to it. Um, she was famously the wife or at least the partner of Doug Kenny, who yes, played yes. Stork uh, in Animal House and was one of the National Lampoon, right? One of the great architects of 70s comedy. But mm-hmm. she is, not funny in this movie. She's cruel to Earl. And then you get this ending where she, she decides to take off and she's going to go and kind of like take this class and sort of leaving him behind. And Earl just decides, Oh, you know what? I'm going to go run away with Vic and Ramona. And yeah, you, uh, no, no, <laughs> it just doesn't yeah. work. And kind of what you were saying, Darren, about, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into this. I feel like the minute he gets in the car with these two, they're going to drive about, two miles out of town and they're going to push him out the door and drive away. 
Like, I, I feel like the, the, the joke's going to be on him yet again. Maybe. Yeah. Like, I think, I don't know. Again, this film is just, I don't know, it's just so confounding. Like, I, you think, like, oh, maybe there, it's a thing where it's like celebrating, you know, counterculture, you know, like, uh, like Easy Rider or five, five Easy Pieces, where it's like, yeah, just, you know, living in a suburb, that's where, that ain't where it's at, man. You got to go out on the road and get the shackles off of your suburban life. You think that's what they're celebrating? I think that's the message you're trying to say here. Like, if you're somebody who's in a midlife crisis and bored with your family, just like abandon your home and burn it all down and just go out on the road. I, I guess that's the message here, but it's just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't come through very clearly. In no. this film. I, I don't know if there was an, enough thought put into this movie for it to have a message. I mean, <laughs> it having a message kind of implies that they knew what they were doing. And I don't feel like anybody involved in this movie really knew what they were doing. Yeah, it's it's it, it is such a shame. To, it's just a mess. Yeah, you know? I said I I remembered I owned this movie on VHS back in the day. Yeah, because Why? and I'll tell you, well, I'll tell you my devotion to SNL, the original SNL, which I watched the original SNL. My parents let me stay up to watch it, even though I was much too young to really see a lot of the humor, or even understand it. Um, my my devotion to SNL. And specifically to Ackroyd and Belushi and, and, you know, Bill Murray was so total. It defined everything that I thought was funny that, mm. that I was like, okay, I, if I'm not laughing at neighbors, it's because there's something wrong with me. I'm just not getting it. Right. And, and you know what I mean? And so I had the Blues Brothers on VHS and I had Animal House on VHS. I even had Dr. Detroit on VHS. You know, I mean, come on. Yeah. And I, and I bought neighbors. And I watched it and I'm like, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not really laughing. And then I would watch it maybe once again, you know, again, like another year or whatever. And I'm like, no, this is, it. and then eventually I just got rid of it because I'm like, okay, I, I grew up enough to say, you know what? No, this one doesn't work. I'll just watch the blues brothers again. Cause this one, <laughs> this one just not working. Yeah, yeah. And that's another thing that I noticed that like, I I'm sure like it frustrated a lot of people at the time when the movie came out too. like, look at the movie poster for this film it does not prepare you for what the actual movie is going to be like. Cause you look mm. at the movie poster, it's very brightly lit. It looks like it's going to be, you know, some zany screwball madcap comedy. You know, you see the neighbors mm-hmm. peeking in the window, uh, Belushi's back to the door, like, Oh, Oh, can't let them in. Like you think you're going <laughs> to get something wacky and it's, there is wackiness in this film, but it's, it's not that. So like, I feel like, cause like, I know the film wasn't super well reviewed and a lot of people, like really hated it and like i i can i can sort of understand that too because like that that movie poster kind of leads you to think it's going to be one thing but it's it's totally you, you get a whole nother thing yeah they probably knew like we got to market this somehow so okay how about a little animal house-ish how's that see if that'll work and you're like no no it just doesn't yeah like i said it, it it's it, it's I, I i give it a chance and then i just watch it it's like 1941 i, I rewatch it and i go no, it's still just not working for me. So, okay, you know, mm. that's it's, it's unfortunate end to his film career. And, you know, we will never know, obviously, what he could have done. Obviously, uh, anybody that goes from Animal House to Old Boyfriends. Again, I don't want to oversell Old Boyfriends like it's some hidden masterpiece. It's not. But it's so... It, it is not. No, it is not. <laughs> it is It is straight up not. But it is so clear that for a guy who was legendary for his 
out of control appetites that he had enough sensitivity as a performer to kind of say, I know I can do other things and I'm willing to maybe give the audience something that it doesn't want to stretch what I think I can do. And, and, you know, it, when you, when you see nowadays how directors can take an actor that's been out of the limelight for a while and give them a new, you know, whether it's like a John Travolta and Pulp Fiction kind of thing where they can take somebody and, and say, you know, show them, present them in a new way. Tragic to think of what could have, what John Belushi could have done if he had managed to get a little older and maybe, you know, like what Bill Murray did, you know, yeah. Bill, Bill Murray managed to get, 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 Bill Murray had his own flop in, in drum in drama in uh, the razor's edge. Uh, but yet, and I have my own thoughts about that movie. It's my favorite book of all time, but I mean, he obviously lived long enough to be able to go do different things. And now he can do anything he wants because the audience will accept him. He can do silly comedy or he can do something incredibly dramatic. And I think Belushi had that ability. Uh, it's unfortunate that circumstances is he never got the chance to do it. And it is, it's is quite a tragic end. Now, I try and end these shows when it, when we're talking about a movie that isn't very good. I try and end the show on on somewhat of an up note. And so there is one other thing I want to mention is that, yes, this is his last film. But uh, one thing that I love and I find is kind of charming in its own way. Now, you guys talk about on your show, you know, you, you uh, review the episodes as they come out with each new season. For people yeah. who haven't heard the show, do you ever go back and review older episodes that have aired long before you guys started the show? We've done that a few times. Um, when when Chaz Bozeman passed away, we went back and we watched the episode he hosted uh, because we hadn't covered that one before. It happened uh, just a year or two before we started the podcast. And let's see, on, on our 100th episode, we went back and we watched the first episode of SNL. Um, and I think that didn't we do uh, when Betty White passed away? We did her episode. Yeah, we did. We did. And we also did like a, I think the Thanksgiving or the Christmas shows gotcha. where it was like the compilations. And yeah, we enjoy going back and revisiting uh, those. Th- those are, those are interesting. Cause yeah. I, I bring that up because in season six, uh, and this is connected to kind of neighbors was that Belushi at this time, uh, he was kind of getting out of the blues a little and he mm-hmm. was very much becoming a fan of punk music. Yes. And he had fallen in love with a band called fear oh, punk boy, band. And they actually were booked on the soundtrack to neighbors and they apparently did a song for it. And the studio heard, t- took one listen and said, forget it. No way are they going to be on the soundtrack? And they got kicked off and Belushi felt so bad that he had kind of gotten these guys into the soundtrack and then they get kicked off that he used his influence with then SNL producer, Dick Ebersol to get fear booked on Saturday night live. Cause this was during mm. season six when yeah. Ebersol or season actually uh, season seven, the beginning of season seven where Ebersol was running the show the, during the five-year interval where Lauren Michaels was not, it's the Halloween show hosted by Donald Pleasance and fear is the musical guest. Yeah. But, what and it I, all went completely smoothly. Yeah, yes, <laughs> and it all went it all went totally fine. But what I what I love about that episode is it opens in the there's a it, the the cold open has Donald Pleasance and it's a backstage slice of life thing where he's getting ready for the show and different cast members are coming in. Hi Donald, you're going to be great. Eddie Murphy comes out, which again, it's just funny to see Eddie Murphy and Donald Pleasance in the same picture. Yeah. 
But, uh, you know, they're all there. And then Donald Pleasance walks off. And this figure comes out of the one of the men's room stalls. And who is it? It's John Belushi making his final appearance on Saturday Night Live. And the audience goes apeshit. I mean, just goes nuts because he had left famously left the show after the fourth season uh, and in kind of not on the best terms with Lorne Michaels. And here he is back and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't even get to say live from New York, which was a curious choice. I don't know why they got rid of that for a couple of episodes during those seasons. I don't understand hmm. what Dick Ebersol was doing. No, I don't think I realized they did that. That's they did for a little while. They just, they just started the music. They don't do live from New York. I don't, why you would get rid of that tag freight tagline. I don't know, but nevertheless, Belushi comes out and this would have been October of 1981. Uh, neighbors would have been finished shooting by then because mm-hmm. the film came out in, in December. So, you know, this was in some ways like his last, the kind of the last appearance he got to make. And I, I have to think it must've warmed his heart a little to go be back on his old stomping grounds and to get the reception that he got. Cause people just go insane because there he, you know, the show had been, had the, you know, had a rough sixth season and it was trying to find its, its way in the seventh season. And here is, you know, kind of the returning King, John Belushi, just making this cameo. And I, not to get to over like to like overstate it, but I, I, I find it touching in its own way to see him one last time getting the glory that he sort of deserved because he was so great on that show. So um, in some ways that's sort of his final appearance really. And uh, that's the way I like to think of him is going out is, is getting that round of applause. Cause you know, he had a lot of problems and, and unfortunately they, he succumbed to them, but man, when he was great, he was like the best ever. Cause he was, he's John Belushi. No, well said. Well said. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's kind of funny you you brought up the fear thing. We actually just talked about that <laughs> on on the podcast uh, recently because we just covered the movie Clue, which of course Mr. Body is played by Lee Ving, who Lee was Ving, the, yeah, the lead singer of Fear. So we actually uh, talked about that <laughs> a little bit. You know, so, <laughs> yeah. Fear, fear. They did uh, some stage diving. They wrecked a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah, it's it didn't go smoothly, guys. No, no. It's uh, apparently it's not in the. It's, you can't see it in the rerun, but apparently no. it happened happened live. Is that fear uh, apparently grew so out of control, at least by Dick Ebersol standards, that he cut the number and they went to a filmed bit, and that was it. That's what you saw in the live show was wow. the musical number just stop in the middle. And they go to like some pre pre taped bit, <laughs> so it's like yeah, didn't go super well. Fear not invited back on SNL. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, everybody. I mean, that is the checkered film career of John Belushi. Uh, there's some great movies there. Of course, there's Animal House and The Blues Brothers. You can actually watch some of Belushi's scenes from Old Boyfriends on YouTube. Some people have taking those scenes. And I would recommend it if you're a fan of John Belushi and you want to see him doing something very different. Yeah. You could check that out on YouTube. I would not recommend renting the movie. I don't think it's worth, uh, well, you know what? On Amazon prime, it's like $2. So you know, it's not worth it. Okay. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I, by the end of the movie, I was just like, I do not like this movie. Yeah. Kelly Shire's character is just kind of an asshole. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Um, but you know, like I said, it's, it's, I still go back to, to, to the best films of his, you know, again, the Blues Brothers and Animal House. And, and so, uh, yeah. you know, this was something I always wanted to do. So guys, thank you for coming. Again, I, I, I'm sorry that I subjected you to neighbors, yeah. 
one last time, but I appreciate you doing the show. Yeah, no, thanks for having so, us. It was, uh, it was, it was a, it was a, it was an experience. We'll yeah. just leave it at that. <laughs> I, I enjoyed this part of it. <laughs> there we go. Okay, fair enough. Fair I did enough. not enjoy watching the movies I had to watch for this, but I enjoyed discussing it with you guys. So. <laughs> fair enough. That's all I can ask. So, well, why don't you tell people where they can find SNL nerds? We're on the non-productive uh, podcast network, but if you just do a search on any of your podcast uh, carriers for SNL nerds, you should see us pop up. We've been doing the show for nearly four years now. Uh, we're just coming up on episode 200. Nice. So we're very proud of that. And uh, like I said earlier, we cover uh, Saturday Night Live, the new episodes of Saturday Night Live when they have a season going. And then on the off weeks and during the summer hiatus, we cover movies and occasionally TV shows starring SNL alums. Uh, we recently, we've done Clue, we've done This is Spinal Tap, we did uh, the Ghostbusters remake. Uh, Darren, what am I missing here? And you've had some actual SNL veterans on the show. We, we've had a few, yeah. We, we talked to um, Siobhan Fallon uh, for our 150th episode, uh, had a great interview with her for our 200th episode, which should be out by the time uh, this podcast goes up uh we we talked to um a uh, gary kroger gary kroger yeah um, that's so cool that's awesome so, yeah and he's he's a, a great interview he had a lot of great stories to tell from his his time in snl which was also during the the uh, dick Eppersall years so that was that was a lot of fun we talked to a few writers uh from the yeah. show as well uh yeah we talked to uh hugh fink who's a writer mm-hmm. on snl we talked to uh dave cyrus who wrote on SNL and who also went on to write the uh, Pete Davidson film, uh, King of Staten Island. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. We talked to uh, Wally Fairstein, who is the cue card guy on SNL and has been for years. And you see him pop up periodically on late night with Seth Meyers. He's sort of a recurring character on there. So, and yeah, he was great to talk to. That's really cool. That's awesome. That's great. And I said, that's, I, uh, I, I, I've, I've been watching SNL since I was a kid. And even when I think about John, I think it was John Lovitz who said in an interview once that SNL has gone beyond good or bad. It's a restaurant in a good location. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, mm. that's about right. And even when SNL was bad, I still watch it because it's still SNL. You know, it's just still it, there's yeah. just, it's got something that it's 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 it, the, the shows that have followed kind of just don't have. They all have their own pluses and minuses. But SNL is still SNL. And even when it's terrible, you're like, well, I'll come back next week, though, because it might be better next week. You know, yeah, I mean, the analogy that I use is, I mean, Darren, neither Darren nor I are sports fans, but we look at it. It's like, you know, it's rooting for your favorite sports team. You don't stop watching them just because they're losing. Yeah. You're, yeah. You're still, you're still rooting for your team. Yeah. You, you want them to have a great show. And they don't always. And I don't I don't think it's a realistic expectation to expect every sketch to be great. Um, cause that just so rarely happens. If you, if they do like two or three good sketches in a show, then that was a good episode of SNL as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Before we sign off here, I just want to ask you guys, since, I mean, not that you're experts in that you have any behind the scenes information, but nevertheless, you've done 200 episodes mm-hmm. on the show and you've been examining it kind of like with under the jeweler's loop kind of thing. And you've talked to writers and you've talked to cast members. I just want your quick hunches. For the new season, right? We know that a bunch of people have left, but the cast already had like 25 people in it. 
So in your mind, do you think when they come back, are they bringing in some more new people and keeping the cast at that gargantuan size? Or do you think they'll just trim, just trim it back so the cast is a more manageable number and the, the mm. people that have remained actually get some stuff to do? Because there were some cast members who just are not on the show for like three, four weeks at a time. So what's your hunch, uh, Darren do you, or John? What, what do you think? Do you think what do you think Lauren's going to do? Uh, I would like it. I would love it if they like now that uh, Kate and Nady and Kyle and Pete have left. I would like I would love it if they just concentrated on the cast that they have now because they already have so many people. They have more than enough people just to let, like you said, like like let them do their thing. Let each person get their own thing on and just really kind of you know just kind of let them explore the stage and let them everybody get a, a moment to shine. That being said, it I I still feel like they're probably going to hire maybe one or two new people, hmm. and like I I, I kind of wish they wouldn't. I, I rather I, I'm one of those people who thinks the cast is too huge as is, and I just like a more you know compact, tighter cast. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, I I was going to say I think I think Lauren's probably going to hire three new people. <laughs> Lauren Lauren seems to like having a packed cast, and I. And I get where he's coming from. I think Lauren, at his age, I think he's like around 80 now. Yeah, he's got to be around 80 because the show's been going for nearly 50 seasons. I I think he doesn't want to have to remake the show from scratch again, especially when he's probably going to wrap it up in a couple of years. You know, he's made noises about possibly retiring after the 50th season. Which is a good time for him to bow out, probably, if he wants, if he chooses. Seasons. Imagine that. I mean, if, if he chooses to stick around, hey, you know, do it un- until you don't want to do it anymore, Lauren, whatever you want to do. Um, but yeah, he seems to like having a real deep bench of people because that allows him, if like he's losing a few people because they're off doing their outside projects, you know, Cecily Strong's doing another season of Schmigadoon or something, he can still like put on a show. He's not really handicapped by that um so that seems to be how he he likes to do the show and he hasn't really remade the show from scratch since like the mid 90s i would say it's always been a steady evolution ever since then right where he just brings in a few people each season some of those people stick around some of them don't so yeah i'd love to see more of the current cast get more of a showcase it'll be interesting to see if like some more people choose to leave or if horn lets a few people go i would not be surprised if cecily strong chose to leave I would not be surprised if like a couple of the newer cast members get let go. I don't want to say names because I don't want to jinx it, but if you watch <laughs> the show, you can probably figure out who's likely. Yeah. Mm. The one, the ones who don't appear for like a month straight. You're like, yeah, the, the ones we're ready to put on milk cartons. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm. Give Melissa Via Senor more to do for love, the love of God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's funny. Why is she so in the light of the show? So, well, I mean, God, we're almost at the season, you know, the show comes back like late September, early October. So we're almost there. We are. So uh, we will find out. So gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I like the SNL nerd show a lot. And I, uh, I admire the, uh, again, any show that gets to 200 episodes, that is an amazing achievement. I know that that is, that is hard to do. Uh, so, uh, again, thank you both for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Rob. We had a fun time. Yeah, this, right. is a, this is a blast, Rob. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much. So, all right, everybody. Now, normally this is where I would wrap up the show, but this time I'm going to take a little break. We're going to run some podcast promos. And when I come back, I'm going to do some listener feedback. 